All right. Well, hey, I'm super stoked to get to be here this evening. We are starting a new series tonight. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Exodus for the rest of the semester, kind of for the next seven weeks. We're going to be right locked in. There's one week in there that's going to be a little bit different. I'm excited to tell you a little more about that when when we get to it. Uh, But we're starting a series called the Echoes of Exodus. Echoes of Exodus. Um, I'm pretty excited because Exodus is actually kind of like the Rosetta Stone for Scripture. Uh, Does anyone know what the Rosetta Stone is? Anybody know what that is? Whoa, not a lot of hands. Okay, does anyone know what Duolingo is? Right? Okay, yeah, that little green owl got a chokehold on YouTube, making you feel bad about breaking your streak all the time. Yeah, that's me too. Okay, we're going to have a little repentance circle in the back after this. Um, yeah, it's got a great Instagram, though. Wild. Very odd, actually. Um, but, but before there was Duolingo, there was uh, the Rosetta Stone software, which was like on like CDs, if you dare, wild stuff. Um, but that's based off of this thing that was called the Rosetta Stone. It wasn't initially software, but as the name implies, it was a stone. Yes, absolutely. That's good. Um, so it was a stone that was founded in 1799 with a royal decree in Egypt in three different languages. Formal Egyptian hieroglyphics, Demotic, which is like, think of like cursive Egyptian, kind of odd, and then ancient Greek. This was a really big deal because after 400 AD, people didn't know like how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics, but they did know how to read Greek. So when they found this stone, they were actually able to translate this decree uh, against the Greek that they did know to understand the hieroglyphics that they, that they didn't know. The, the Rosetta Stone was used essentially to interpret one language through another. It, it would become synonymous for understanding what feels obscure, a map for understanding language. I, I really want this picture in our minds as we get into the book of Exodus because Exodus functions like a Rosetta Stone for the rest of the Bible, in a sense. If you're ever curious, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're ever curious about what God is doing, what he's probably doing can be unpacked through the story of Exodus. In a a very real sense, all of Scripture in some way actually echoes Exodus, and Exodus echoes into most every other place of Scripture. Exodus will foreshadow in part what will happen in full through the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's it's an incredible book that we're going to be camping in for a little bit. But before we begin, we need to kind of lock in two words, and then we we can actually move into the text. So word number one is is viable. Word number two is formational with the book of Exodus. Is it okay? I'm going to teach a little bit on the front end, so then when we get into, like, the preaching, it'll make sense, okay? That's that's where we're going. Exodus has a kind of complex but viable history. Not much remains after 3,300 words, but Egypt had a history of recording and keeping artifacts that really only served to retain and uplift their position regionally. Embarrassments, like the Exodus would actually be for the people of Egypt, were only recorded and retained if there was a coinciding victory. If they could say, well, we were embarrassed here, but we ended up winning, that didn't happen in the Exodus. That doesn't come for the Egyptians. In fact, the Exodus starts in Egypt, but more than half of the book of Exodus actually Egypt fades into the backdrop of the story as they leave and go into the wilderness. The archaeological study of this is interesting. I won't bore you with it, but even the most skeptical archaeologists have to concede that at the very least there was a group of people who bordered this focused region of Egypt, spoke a Semitic language like Hebrew, were present, presumably enslaved, and then not present anymore, presumably liberated. The full story of that established people group, the Israelites, is what is told through the story of Exodus. 
Exodus is viable, but it's also formational. If we were to pull up 30,000 kind of uh, 30,000 foot view of Exodus, we would see one overarching plot line for the book of Exodus. It'll be right up here on the screen. The overarching book uh, story of this is this establishment, enslavement, liberation and renewal. That is the pattern of the story of Exodus. It's this process of establishment of a people, this understanding of an enslavement of this people, the coinciding liberation of this people, and then a renewed way of life. These four movements are actually often understood as the plot line not only of Exodus but of Scripture, uh, sometimes using the words creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Like I said, Exodus is a Rosetta Stone for Scripture. Through it, we see the entirety of the story of the Bible. But it's not just the story of Scripture. That breakdown of Exodus is actually the, desi- the only desired outcome for all of life. Let me explain. Much of the struggle of life that you experience, that your parents have experienced, that your friends experience, that people around you experience, kind of can be summed up like this. I was born into a family in a particular place. That's my experience of establishment. In my birth, in my upbringing, in my experiences, in my choices, through the choices of others, my life has things in it that I want to be free from, that I want to change, that I want to transform, but I feel trapped by them. An experience of a type of enslavement. I want to do or get or be something to be free from this thing that I feel trapped by. A desire for liberation so that I can live a different, free, new way of life. A desire for renewal. Establishment, enslavement, liberation, and renewal. It's not just the story of scripture. It's the desired outcome for all of life. And echoes of Exodus are everywhere. The degrees of intensity change from person to person, place to place, experience to experience. Absolutely. But they're present nonetheless. And as we study the story of Exodus in Scripture, while these divisions are clear, you will realize that it isn't always as clean of a story, maybe if you grew up in church, as you've always heard it to be. Exodus is a gnarly tale, guys. Like, it is, it is a story of starts and stops along the way. It can be a very frustrating book of Scripture to read at times. You'll have moments when we're going through it, and you'll, you'll, you'll get into it, and you'll be like, why on earth are these people acting this way? Like, what is wrong with them? Like, why can't they just get it together? And in moments like that, I think you'll have an awakening to how very similar we actually are to the people in this story. How our lives are also full of starts and stops, um, highs and lows, consistencies and inconsistencies. I actually think Exodus will help you to see all the more fully how fickle we are as a people and Christian, how beautifully faithful God is as our God. So in these next few weeks, you'll see Exodus become a foreshadowing, a map of meaning, a directorate for us to look at the climax of the scriptures, the story of God that leads us to Jesus, where we find and come to understand that ultimately all of humanity is looking for what can only be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. And as we walk through the the book, the story will kind of sound something, something like this. It'll sound like this. The people are oppressed and enslaved. So God sends a mediator who leads them out of captivity. God saves them, though they complain. He provides a new way for their flourishing through the one he sent. When they rebel, he still redeems, and he is with them always. That's the story of Exodus. 
And each week as we walk through Exodus, we're going to take this one piece at a time. Starting tonight with the first two chapters of Exodus, where we'll focus on this first phrase. The people are oppressed and enslaved. And my goodness, were they. I hope that was enough time to get to Exodus chapter 1. Sorry, we're in Exodus chapter 1 if you got your Bible out. Um, In light of that introduction of Exodus, I'll be teaching kind of quicker this evening, but we are going to get after it. So like we say, if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's get after it. Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephalti, Gad, Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died. Cool. Uh, Ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. This text helps pose a necessary question. How the heck did we get to Egypt? Like, like what's going on that we would wind up right at this point in in Egypt? Uh, In short... Joseph is the second youngest son of Jacob, who's one of the patriarchs or founders of the Israelite people. If you were to go back to Genesis, you could sum it up by looking at creation, fall, establishment of a promise between God and Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. That's this guy, Jacob. His son Joseph's story is actually what ends the book of Genesis and brings us into the book of Exodus. Joseph's story is gnarly. His brother's sell him into slavery. Try that family dynamic. How's Thanksgiving? I don't know, Reuben. You sold me into slavery. Like, that's pretty awful. Um, He's unjustly accused by the wife of the family who purchases him of sexual assault. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten in prison until one day he isn't, and through a series of events, he's elevated to be second in charge of all of Egypt. Then during a regional famine, his brothers, the same ones that sold him into slavery, come to Egypt to get grain. He recognizes them, and after a bumpy ride of a story, he reconciles with them, uh, which leads these people, the Israelites, at this time a small nomadic tribe being given land by that current pharaoh on the border of Egypt where they grow into a larger and larger group of people. That's how we got here. And it's not long before we see their oppression and their enslavement. To summarize Exodus 1 verses 8 through 22, the rest of this chapter, it explains how a new pharaoh, a new king comes into power in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. And they start to question, why is this people group that's right on our border that isn't like us, that's growing, allowed to just continue to grow. If we let them grow, aren't they just going to conquer us eventually? Right? Welcome to like the Bronze Age warfare mentality. It's wild. Everyone's like, they're going to kill me all the time. That's pretty much all they're thinking at this point in history. So the Egyptians make Israel their slaves and oppress them in at least six ways. First, they oppress them racially as a people group. They address them as one people group that's growing and racially oppress them through slavery. Spiritually, as they are a people whose existence is centered around the worship of Yahweh, they were prevented from leaving to be able to worship him. Politically, they're oppressed because the oppression comes from Pharaoh, who's functionally a theocratic dictator. Vocationally, they're enslaved to make bricks and work their fields ruthlessly, Almost every translation of scripture uses a word that translates as ruthlessly at that point. Socioeconomically, their enslavement drives the people into poverty. And then finally, in an 
absolutely heartbreaking rendition at the end of chapter one. Um, reproductively, they're oppressed as Pharaoh demands that the midwives kill all the baby boys who are born to these people so that they would not multiply anymore. To their credit, the midwives actually refuse to do that. God blesses them and the people continue to multiply. But there's no doubt the people are oppressed and enslaved and it is a dark time for the people of Israel. Chapter 1 does not end on a high note for them. Now in chapter 2, we start to see a glimmer of hope. We're introduced to someone who we'll be spending much more time with next week, focusing in on, whose name is Moses. Uh, this chapter, it's the birth of Moses, which, who would be miraculously spared, raised as an Egyptian in the household of Pharaoh. Then it zooms into like a snapshot of his life that's really interesting and starts to show us a little bit of his character. Uh, there's a moment when Moses sees an Egyptian man abusing a Hebrew slave, and so he goes up, he interjects, he protects the Hebrew man, and in so doing ends up killing the Egyptian, buries the body, dips out. Day two, seemingly, he rolls up and there's two Hebrew men fighting each other. And he rolls up and he's like, why are you fighting your friend? And one of the Hebrew men looks at him and says, who made you a ruler over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that guy? When people look at you and immediately assume you're a killer of people, I've got news for you. Your time's coming to an end in that region. And so he is a man on the run as people are trying to come after him. He runs out into the wilderness of Midian, cares for a family, family's flock out there, and eventually marries their daughter Zipporah. Like I said, we're going to meet him in the wilderness next week and get a little more on our boy Moses. But the end of chapter 2 brings us back from the wilderness into the city. Back to the people who are oppressed and enslaved. And it's here that the book of Exodus kind of really seems to begin. Everything to this point is introduction. The pace of our text is set in this chapter. Some, some scholars write the first two chapters of Exodus are many years. And from chapter 3 to chapter 40, it's like two years. Like the pace slows way down here. As we hit verse 23 that you heard Seth just read for us. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for, rescue came for sla- their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So we're going to slow way down and spend the rest of our time right here in what is honestly one of my favorite portions of Scripture. There are four words here that are used to describe God in relation to his people that are absolutely incredible. Shamar, Zachar, Ra'ah, and Yada. That God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. These are four incredible words. And we'll take them in two groups at a time. Um, first, God heard and God saw. The text says that God 
heard their groaning and then says he saw the Israelites. This word saw, very briefly, is the word, it translates into looked upon or turned his face towards. It comes up again in chapter 4 to indicate what exactly God saw because it's important to understand what he's seeing. Exodus chapter 4 verse 31, uh, we records that he had seen their misery or he had seen their affliction. God is seeing and hearing in this context something that is very specific. He is seeing their affliction and he's hearing their They're groaning, proving that he's attentive to their suffering. It's important to note that what's being indicated here in the language is not that he like woke up from a slumber and then started to see and hear these people. What's indicated here is that what God ends up doing next reveals to the Israelites, specifically to Moses, that God has heard and seen them. Or as odd as this sounds in English, that he has been being seeing him them and has been hearing them. That he had not abandoned them. Suffering, whether it comes from our sin or from someone else's sin around us or against us or from simply the reality of living in a world that's affected by sin, suffering has a sound to God. He sees and he hears the groaning and the affliction of his people. Suffering does not bypass him. He hears it and he sees it. Hears and sees is paired with remembered and new. Again, we've got to do just a little bit of work here. The idea of him remembering here is of the covenant, the promise that he made to the Israelites that he would be their God, they would be his people, that they would be a great nation, and that the whole world would be blessed through them, which is looking ahead to Jesus, who would be the savior of the world, uh, though he was an ethnic Jew. To record uh, that God remembered is the writer saying that God acted in such a way that was evident that he had not forgotten them. It's like me rolling up to you on your birthday and me being like, happy birthday. And you're like, you remembered. And I'm like, I never forgot. Like that, that, that's that sort of interaction. He's recorded as remembering as a proof to the reader and to the hearer that he had never forgotten. The word here for new is the Hebrew word yada. This word has a long history of being deeply interpersonal and intimate knowing. It's not the knowing simply of information. It's the knowing of the mind, the heart, the body, the soul. It is an intensely personal word. Some scholars translate this to he had respect unto them. Others that he accepted them. Again, it's to say that God would act in such a way that was understood as so deeply knowing and having not forgotten his people in the suffering they were experiencing that he saw and that he heard. God saw, God heard, God remembered, God knew. He had not abandoned them and even in this dark moment he is still seeing hearing and acting for the Israelites and for us this is significant for two reasons first it is deeply comforting to know that God sees remembers hears and knows second it is desperately needed for him to see remember hear and know so first deeply comforting pause here for a moment. Again, I know I'm doing a lot of teaching tonight. Bear, bear with me. When we read the scripture, we need to pay attention to what's called the authorial intent, which is to say that the writer of scripture, inspired by the spirit, has an intent for their writing. I think a part of the telling and eventual writing of this story is for the people who would hear or read this account in the future to remember that God heard, saw, and acted in the past. For the future reader, 
to remember that he's done something in the past. As we read the rest of Exodus, it will be obvious that God heard, saw, and acted. And even when these people are experiencing this dark, painful stretch of being enslaved and being oppressed, in the middle of it, God is seeing, hearing, and acting. Watch this. Even when they might not have thought that he was. That God, having done something, would prove to them that he will actually continue to do that thing. And to know that God is hearing, seeing, and acting when it doesn't feel like he is, is a deeply comforting reality. You see, sometimes it feels so obvious to you and so clear, perhaps, that God is seeing, hearing, and acting in your life. Those are wonderful moments, even when they are in the midst of painful experiences. Those deepen your life and your faith in significant ways. But there are other moments when you don't feel like he sees you. When you don't feel like he hears you, you don't feel like he's remembered you, you don't feel like he knows you, you don't feel like he's acting. But when you look back, you can clearly see how he had heard, how he was acting, how he did remember, how he did know. We just miss it in the moment. He was hearing, but we didn't hear it. He was seeing, but we didn't see it. He was remembering, but we didn't remember it. He was knowing, but we didn't know it. So what do you do in moments where those two realities of knowing and feeling crash into each other. When on one hand you're like, I know that God sees, he hears, he remembers, he knows, and I do not feel like it. What do you do when those two things come together? What holds them together? How can we experience deep comfort in those moments? We can be deeply comforted in those moments through a practice that I call faithful remembrance. Sometimes faith in my life looks like me presently remembering that God sees, hears, and acts even when I don't feel like he is. Faithful remembrance is the practice of looking back and remembering how he has heard, seen, and acted in the past. I look at scriptures. I remember the gospel. I look at the stories of people around me. I remember my own story. I look back with this practice of faithful remembrance, literally a remembrance of the past that fills me with faith, that helps me to remember what I know is, in the, is true in the middle of being honest about what I'm feeling and experiencing. It actually brings me to a point where I can be honest in my prayer about what I'm feeling. God, I feel alone. And to remember what is true, but I know that you see, hear, and act, so God, help me to remember who you are. Those are the two hands coming together, what I feel and what I know in a moment of prayer. In this practice, you can bring your honest feelings to God about what you are experiencing and simultaneously remember and return to what is true about him. And it's there that you find deep comfort. That because he did it before, I can actually trust that he'll do it again. Because he's heard, seen, remembered, and known me before, I can trust that he will do it again. I can trust that he's the same God now that he was back then. This is the deep comfort that comes through faithful remembrance. This is one of the things that would have been remembered by the people of God, the Israelites, over and over and over as they recounted this story. Back then, when we were oppressed and enslaved, God knew and he saw and he heard and he remembered. So why wouldn't we assume he's doing it now? Like it actually brings us to that point where we are full of faith in our remembrance of what he's done. If he's done it before, he'll do it again. It's deeply comforting. It is also desperately needed. 
To know that God hears, sees, and acts is desperately needed for the Israelites because this sadly would not be the last time that this ethnic group was oppressed and enslaved. They're enslaved in the Exodus, and later in the Old Testament, you would find that they're enslaved in the exile. Later in the Old Testament, the Israelites will establish a kingdom. That kingdom will split. Those split kingdoms will be conquered, and the people of Israel will be exiled. This seems similar to the Exodus, but there's one key difference from the Exodus. In the Exodus, their enslavement was because of the sin of somebody else. In the exile, they're enslaved because of their own sin. They turn away from God, and so, as Paul repeats three times in Romans 1, God gives them over to the desires of their heart, and it leads to their exile. Please don't be mistaken. This cycle concludes with liberation from Assyria and renewal of the walls in the city of Jerusalem. Establishment, enslavement, liberation, renewal. The echoes of Exodus echo into their exile. But the key difference here is that they are enslaved and oppressed not because of someone else's sin this time, but because of their own. And it's here that we actually pick up on the testimony of Scripture. Whether it is someone else doing something to you or whether it is your own actions, sin always leads to enslavement. Paul in Romans will say it like this. Our Gospel 101 cohorts actually got into it this week. Romans chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Sin throughout the Scripture is consistently attributed and called a force that is enslaving and oppressive. Sin runs deep. All the way deep. And I wonder if sometimes we realize how deep it actually goes. To be clear, sin first creates a separation between us and God. Simply put, sin corrupts and God is holy. And in his holiness, sin cannot come into or around or near him, which creates separation. Again, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Maybe you've heard that verse before. I just want you to know we're going to come back to it because that's not the full thought that Paul's giving there. But, but we'll hit that here in just a moment. Sin separates us from God. But do we know how deep that separation goes? Like, have you ever thought about how deep the strain of sin is entrenched in our lives and our bodies? Through the experience of others, our upbringing, trauma, our choices, community, places we find ourselves, patterns we tolerate, a million other things. Sin often runs much deeper than we think. Sin, uh, you could say, affects us from fruit to root. From our actions to our mind to our trust. I've found this language from Robert Mullahan and Bethany Allen to be really helpful in assessing the depth of my own sin. Perhaps you'll, you'll see the same. Um, you, could, you could draw this out from, from fruit, if there is any, to root. Fruit, first of all, at the top, sin is seen in our conscious actions. These are expressions of sin that are visible and felt by ourselves and by others. Often they are sins of commission when we sin by doing something that is against the way of Jesus. Or they are sins of omission when we sin by not doing something that we should do as followers of the way of Jesus. Often these sins are frequently seen in external actions. And often this is as far as we go in thinking about sin. Just my conscious actions. But sin runs deep. You go from fruit to trunk. That there are unconscious dispositions, and I'm using unconscious as the noun and not the adjective. 
patterns of thinking and feeling that are influenced by our sinful nature and the brokenness of our culture around us that are often more internal than external. These are the lies that we often believe to be true that end up structuring the way that we live almost sub or unconsciously. I don't even know why I do that thing. Perhaps this is why. It's just still so ingrained and so a part of who I am. But sin runs deep from fruit to trunk to roots. These are the trust structures that we build our lives around. The things where if you remove them, it would almost feel like I was starting over in my life. These are deep-seated attitudes and inner orientations of our being out of which our behavioral patterns flow. These deep inner postures of our being that do not rely on God, but often rely on ourselves for our own well-being. It's where motivation gets mixed up, where we have pure ones and impure ones, where the idols that we worship and wrap our lives around live. And often these are some of the most painful things for God to work on or for others to notice. And when they're touched, it can feel like you're being ripped apart. Our sin runs deep, deeper than we often pretend that it doesn't. It goes all the way down from our actions to our thoughts to what we build our lives around and trust most deeply. The more attentive I personally am to it, the more deep I see it go and I start to realize how absolutely helpless I am to actually fix my sin how entrenched it is, how like enslavement it actually is. It's almost as if I actually needed to be liberated from it. Like it's almost as if I'd actually needed to be saved from something that goes this deep. And it's here that our desperate need is actually revealed. The depth of sin reveals my desperate need for a God who hears, remembers, sees, and knows me. And in the same way, your depth of sin reveals your desperate need for a God who sees, remembers, hears, and knows you. So let me just remind you of a few things here as I, as I close. First, I want you to know that he hears your groaning just as he heard theirs. Even if we don't realize it's groaning. Sometimes we do realize it's groaning. Sometimes we see our sin and we cry out longing to be changed and free. Other times it feels like all the things we try to find comfort or control or power or pleasure in other than God himself are the things that are crying out on our behalf. Those things that will never satisfy and never fulfill us that feel like the baseline of our lives that keep repeating, will things ever actually change? Can I actually change? That groaning. He hears that groaning. He hears that longing to be free, to be saved. He hears and he remembers. He remembers you right where you are. He he remembers and he does not forget. There's never been an accidental person in the history of history. He has not forgotten you. He's made a way for you to be with him through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He remembered his covenant with the Israelites. And when you come to faith in Jesus, he'll remember his new covenant that he's made with you. A new promise in Christ to have union with God now into eternity. Life everlasting with God that starts on the day that you put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. To be accepted by him to belong with him to be his and for him to be yours he remembers and he sees he sees your need to be freed he, he sees our sin and he sees his holiness and he sees that our sin cannot enter into and be in his holiness so instead of impossibly demanding that we fix ourselves to come to him he condescends and comes to us 
Jesus lives a perfect life that we could never live, dies the death on the cross that our sin deserves. Remember how I said that that wasn't the end of that thought in Romans chapter 3 just a couple of, of minutes ago? We remember that? The wages of sin is, is death. Let me, let, me, let me break this down for just a moment. Uh, chapter 23, or sorry, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 23, Romans says this. For everyone is sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, not the end of the thought. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Verses 23 through 25. Don't miss that. He freed us from the penalty of our sin, and now people are made right with God. That is to say that because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for our sin, he has made all who've trusted in him right with God. All sin is paid for, either by ourselves or by Jesus. Jesus pays the penalty for our sin through his shed blood and then rises again to new life so that we might have assurance of our union with him, that we will know that we will be alive with God forever as Christ is alive with him forever. He saw our need to be freed and so he suffered the separation of sinners for sinners so that all sinners who trust in the Savior might be made right with God. Our sin that removed us from being with him is forgiven so that we can actually come again. He sees and he knows. Zay, you can go ahead and come on up. He knows. Intimately, intensely, personally, he knows. He knows you, Christian. He knows you will still have moments when you sin. He knows you will still have lies that you will believe. He knows you will have conscious lies, the, the conscious sins that you commit. He knows that you'll have unconscious dispositions that, that will shape parts of your life, that there will be mixtures of things that you will structure your life around to trust him. He knows the depths of your sin, but the beauty of the gospel is that where sin runs deep, his grace is more. That doesn't mean that he's passive it means that he's powerful. It means that grace is strong and at work in your life. That in his grace he knows you and he's gracious towards you to save you and to shape you. To forgive you and to form you. He's gracious enough to go after the depths of our sin in our actions, in our minds, in our roots, in our trusts. To not leave us at any place in slavery to our sin but to fully liberate us from its chokehold on our lives to make a way for us to live a renewed life as we follow after him. Our sin was deep, but his grace was deeper. His love was deeper. Our enslavement was deep. His liberation is deeper. His salvation is deeper. All who come to Jesus are made free by the God who sees you, who remembers, who hears, and who knows. His desire is for all who come to him to experience complete liberation and salvation from every depth of sin. And so to that end, I want to just give you a little bit of room to respond in prayer. You can close your eyes and bow your heads. No one's going to come around and do anything odd to you. No one's going to ask you to come forward or tap your shoulder or anything like that. I just want to give you a moment to focus and to concentrate. Our sin was deep. His grace is deeper. With all this in mind, there's kind of one question that remains for all of us. And it's simply this. Do you trust 
that God's deliverance is actually better than our enslavement to sin. Like, do you think that's actually better? If, if you don't, you'll stay in it. But if you do, tonight, your response can be like the Israelites. You can cry out. I'm not saying you have to scream in this room. I'm saying that internally, the disposition of your heart can be, I'm crying out. I need you, God. You can come to him and make your need known to him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope that you cry out. If you cry out to Jesus, you turn from your say, I'm done with that old way. I'm done staying in this enslaved. I want liberation. I want to be free. I want salvation. You can trust in him as Lord and Savior tonight, and he'll save you. I hope you cry out. If you're a Christian, I hope you cry out. We are never beyond our need for the gospel. If you've been freed by Jesus and as you follow him and are with him more and more, conscious sin and unconscious disposition and trust structures, they'll get exposed. The closer you get to him, the more exposed those things will be and they could cause you to run away and to shy away. But I hope instead that you cry out, that you bring those things to Jesus that you confess those sins, that you say, Jesus, I need you to renew my mind. Jesus, I want you to be the one that I trust in, for him to be the one you're disposed towards, for his life to shape your life more and more and more. Maybe you need to ask the Spirit of God to convict you, to reveal any part in you that you may be tolerating or hanging on to. I hope that you cry out. So I want to ask you to just take a moment here. You can sit right where you are and pray. How do you need to, to cry out? Take some time, and in a moment I'll pray. And then in response to this good grace, we'll sing. God, thank you for hearing. Thank you for remembering. Thank you for seeing. Thank you for knowing. Lord, you've never been deaf to the prayer for deliverance and so we're crying out wherever we are whatever that looks like for us we we need you would we be deeply comforted 
in moments where we're not totally sure how you're seeing or knowing or remembering or, or hearing. And in those moments, would you remember, would you remind us that through Christ, you have done all of those things more fully than we could ever dare dream. Father, would our knowing of our need for you to see and to hear and to remember and to know, would we continue to see more and more of our life be shaped to look more like the Savior and be less entrenched in our sin? We know you've saved us from it, but would we continue to live into the life that you've set apart for us in Christ? Father, that it would lead to beautiful lives. Not easy, not simple, but ones that are gentle and strong, that are humble and courageous, that are worshipful and personal. Father, that we would be as your son called us to be, light of the world, the salt of the earth. Do we cry out? We need you. We need you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and stand to your feet.